Thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. So I want to kick off this week with just a couple of questions, just to get us thinking about at the beginning. And they're big questions. Um, There's a lot packed in uh, to each question. But I want to start with this one. How much of your life is currently spent? How much of your life is currently spent managing your image because you don't want people to see some of the secrets that you're hiding about your life? Avoiding risk because you're afraid of what might happen if you were to take a chance on something, maybe something you feel like God is leading you to do. Or looking for affirmation because you don't have enough confidence to live without the need for approval, maybe from a particular group or a friend, or someone specific in your life? How much of your life is currently spent doing one of those things? Managing your image, avoiding risk, and looking for affirmation. But I want to ask this question as well. How would you live if you had nothing to hide? If there was nothing that you were afraid of, and if there was nobody whose approval that you couldn't live without? How would you live if you had nothing to hide, nothing you were afraid of, and no one whose approval you couldn't live without. Third question is, do you believe that kind of life is even possible? Every once in a while, as I'm going through my life, I meet somebody who's living that kind of life. A life where they're not afraid. A life where they don't care what people think of them. A life where they have nothing to hide. Maybe you have have a friend like that, or you know somebody, or maybe that was your parent, or uh, you see your spouse that way. You have somebody in your life who's that way. And every time you see somebody like that, who lives without anything to hide, who lives without the incessant need for approval, who isn't afraid, there's something compelling about it, something magnetic. When you meet somebody like that, there's often a sense, like, I would love to live like that. I often feel that if I meet somebody, and every once in a while I do, I meet somebody who's really living into that, and I'm like, I want to live like that. That's the kind of person I want to be. But if you're like me, what immediately follows that thought is a list of excuses, a list of reasons why I can't. I say, that's not my wiring, right? They're wired that way. Or that's not my personality. That's not where I fall in the disc assessment. And that's only for certain kinds of people. Or that's my Enneagram number. Or that's not the, my situation. And so I can't live like that. There's, there's reasons why I carry these insecurities. There's the reasons I have these fears. There's reasons that I carry these secrets. But what I want to talk about this morning is if you're tired of living that way, it is possible to live a different way. This morning, we're continuing our series uh, called This is Jesus. And in this episode, which is just a series of three short teachings from Jesus as he introduces a longer set of teachings throughout the rest of of chapter 12 of Luke, what Jesus is doing is he addresses the fact that all of us, every one of us, are naturally prone, it's part of the human condition, naturally prone to carrying secrets, fears, and insecurities as a part of our day-to-day life, that if we don't figure out how to deal with them, will drive our decision-making and lead to boring, inconsequential lives, and even worse, afterlives. I know of nobody in here who wants to live like that. And if you're tired of living that way, and you're ready to start living a life of consequence, what Jesus does in Luke chapter 12, which is where we're continuing our series through Luke today, what he does is he pulls you and his disciples aside and he begins to give us the key, the secret that unlocks the life that you're made for, 
a life where you can live without fear, a life where you can live without something to hide, and a life where you can live without the constant need for approval. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Luke chapter 12, 1 through 12, this is our passage for today. Um, and there's a transition verse that opens up like this. It says, meanwhile, Luke chapter 12, 1 through 12, meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands, everybody say many thousands, came together so that they were trampling on one another. And then he began to say to his disciples first. And so up until this passage in Luke chapter 11, some of you remember from last week, Jesus had dinner with a group of people called the Pharisees. And you can go back last week to hear what they were all about. And while he was eating dinner, you could think of Jesus as a local celebrity pastor of sorts or a local celebrity. And everybody knows about him. And somebody has caught the, onto the fact that he is having dinner at somebody's house and has started to tell everybody else. And now a crowd of thousands has been gathering while Jesus has been laying into the Pharisees over dinner. And so he comes out and there's this crowd crowd of thousands of people. Um, just to imagine that, last week I took my son to Picklesburg. Anybody been to that? Um, it's insane. Um, I told my son, I said, hey, there's a huge party today on a bridge for anybody who loves pickles. Do you love pickles? And we went, and I was full of regrets. It was, it was hot, it was crowded, everybody had pickles, um, and I'm not a big fan of pickles, but everybody was trampling on each other on this bridge. This is the, the kind of excitement that people have about Jesus right now. And in the midst of this, in Luke chapter 12, he's going to give them a series of teachings that are on a lot of different subjects. But what he does first is before he speaks to the crowd of thousands, he pulls us aside, his followers, his disciples, ordinary people learning to live everyday life like him. He pulls us aside and he gives us these three short teachings that are all held together by this central thread. And the central thread is this, is what you believe about the future should influence how you live in the present. What he's going to do is give him three short teachings that all are tied together this way. What you believe about the future should, and I say should because it doesn't always, but should influence how you live in the present. Should influence how you live in the present. In particular, how you deal with the secrets, fears, and insecurities that all of us carry. And to help us understand this, I'm going to use two big phrases, okay? Um, And the first one is imminent frame. One of the hallmarks of living in a secular age, which is an age where uh, belief in the supernatural is on decline, especially in places like Pittsburgh where we live, belief in God, belief in anything more to reality than what we can see is on the decline. One of the things that has changed is that our cultural default, our way of experiencing the reality, just being born where we are, is what philosopher Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. Everybody say imminent frame. All right, you guys are doing philosophy with me now. And so what, what he's talking about here is something that something has shifted over the last 500 years, and we have a whole new way of conceptualizing the world. Let's break that phrase down. Everybody knows what a frame is. It's a box, okay? It's a box. It has edges. It has corners. It comes together. Um, it's a box. And imminent means within. And so when you have an imminent frame, what you have is you have essentially inside the box kind of thinking, within the box. And if you see reality as an imminent frame, here's what that means. It means that you, what you see is all there is, and nothing happens when you die. To have an imminent frame view of reality is to say, everything that I see is all that there is, and there's nothing beyond it, and what happens when I die is I just go back into the ground, and that's the end of me. That's life in the imminent frame. It would be like, you know, you walked into this building this morning, And then you begin to live as if there is nothing beyond this building. That this building is all there is. And all of your life, all of your emotions, all of your mental resources have to come from within this building. That's how a lot of, uh, that's culturally how we've come to see the world in which we live. And if you're an unbeliever in the room, 
there's a good chance that maybe that's the way that you view the world. Maybe you've never put it that way, but maybe that's the way you view the world. But I also want to say that if you're a believer in the room, there's a good chance that functionally, you, or you might say that you believe something else about the world, but functionally, this is how many of us live and engage with the world. We live as if this is all there is. Thousands of messages every day are being poured into us that are saying, this is all there is. This is all there is. There's nothing else. And even as unbelievers, that's a mode that's been integrated into us, and it's hard to break. But one of the problems with this view of the world, which we're going to talk about shortly, is that it lacks the resources necessary to deal with the secrets, insecurities, and fears that we carry. And so what Jesus does here is he offers an alternative. Now, the disciples would not have had an imminent frame. In the first century, everybody believed that there was, a, there was a supernatural. There was more to the world. That's what we believe now. The issue wasn't that they didn't believe there was more. It's just that they had sometimes the wrong views about what the rest of the universe might be like or what more there might be to the world. And whatever their view of the future was, what Jesus is about to make clear is that it wasn't influencing and shaping their lives. Because again, what you believe about the future ought to influence how we live in the present, but it wasn't for the uh, the disciples. And that's why in this series of teachings, what Jesus wants to give his disciples is another big phrase that you can drop on your friends, which is the phrase vibrant eschatology. Everybody say vibrant eschatology. All right, now we're not just doing philosophy, we're doing theology this morning. We're going real deep. I, I would not recommend bringing that up in a relationship or in a, in a conversation with your friends over coffee. But what he's doing here is he's about to give them a vibrant eschatology. Let's break that down, okay? Um, because you might come across it in a book someday. Um, but the word eschatology, to break it down, ology means the study of. You hear it on the end of a lot of words. Biology, study of life. Ology, the study of something. Eschatos means last. And so when you're talking about eschatology, you're talking about the study of the last things. You're talking about the future, how things end, and how that impacts our life in the present. That's what eschatology is. But then we don't just want an eschatology, we want a vibrant one. And here's what that means. You want one that's really at work in you. You want one that has momentum, one that influences and shapes the way that you live your life, the decisions that you make on a day-to-day -day basis. The problem with the disciples wasn't that they didn't have an eschatology. The problem was that it wasn't vibrant. It wasn't shaping them in significant ways. And so to have a vibrant eschatology is to live as if this isn't all there is and that there is something that happens when we die. It's a view that's been shaped by the teaching of Jesus and the rest of the Bible. And what we're going to see as we continue on is that this has way better resources for dealing with your insecurities, fears, and secrets that we carry. And instead of having to organize your life around those things, you are free from them. Before we continue, often uh, Christians are accused of being, this is a phrase, maybe a cliche you've heard, of being so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Or sometimes Christians are accused that they think so much about the future that they don't have any impact on the present. They're just thinking about what happens when Jesus comes back and so on. I want to flip that though. And I want to say that actually the people throughout history who have made the biggest difference for good in the present are the ones who have had their, the clearest and most compelling vision of the future. The people who have done the most good in the world are the ones not who lived in the imminent frame but the ones who had a vibrant eschatology. And so this morning, that's what Jesus is going to do for us. He's going to give us a view of the future that will shape and impact your life in the present, in particular, help you deal with the secrets, fears, and everything else that keeps you from living the life that you're made for. And so what you believe about the future ought to influence how you live in the present. And so many of us are conditioned to live as if this is all there is. 
But in what follows, Jesus does whatever he can to break us out of that and give us a better vision of the future that can shape our lives. And so the first thing he does is he addresses the secrets that shape our lives. Everybody say secrets. The secrets that shape our lives. Because all of us are carrying behaviors, thoughts, and experiences that are often different from the front that we put up for people. So the question that all of us have to ask as we're getting started is, what are you trying to hide? What are you trying to hide? 2005, pop punk was all the rage, and the All-American Rejects shared a song called Dirty Little Secrets. Some of you are like, did Austin just make a pop punk reference from the early 2000s? I did, Um, uh, because I was there. And the chorus of that song said, I'll tell you my dirty little secret, but don't let anyone know or you'll be just another regret. And the idea of that song is that we all carry secrets. We all have things that we don't want anyone else to know. We all have things that we are afraid that somebody will find out about us. And for the music video, they had anonymous people holding up secrets that had been posted anonymously to a website, secrets that nobody had told anybody else. And that was how the whole music video went. And my dirty little secret at the time was that I watched that music video on MTV, even though it was blocked, because my dad used the same passcode for everything, and my sister and I knew it. Um, And so we we found a way to watch that. all of us are carrying secrets. Last week, we, we talked about hypocrisy a lot. And one of the key features of hypocrisy is that you're carrying the wrong kind of secrets. Um, you're one way in public, and you're another way in private. You're one way on the outside, you're another way on the inside. We call it a dirty cup spirituality. But the point is that you have these secrets, secret behaviors, secret thoughts, secret whole secret life that no one knows about you. As one author put it, who ironically ended up being another person in private than he was in public, as one author put it, we're talking about who you are when nobody's looking. Might be a secret addiction, a secret search history, secret marriage problems, secret online persona, secret relationships, secret thoughts, secret sins. All of us have things that we haven't told anybody. But this is what secrets will do to you, especially if you're living in the imminent frame. Secrets will make you spend your life managing your image. The more secrets you carry, the more energy you will have to put into for the rest of your life trying to manage your image before other people, trying to help make sure nobody stumbles into who you actually are by accident. Nobody stumbles into the disconnect between the front that you put up and filter for everybody else and the actual you. You don't let people get too close to you because you've got to manage your image. Because if somebody gets too close, they might see below the surface. They might see the real you. And so you're like, look, I can't let people get too close to me. And you find yourself, you're having to keep track of certain stories that you're telling yourself and telling other people so that you can keep your image up. And you find yourself thinking, as long as I can take these secrets with me to the grave, I'll be good. I just got to get through another couple decades or another couple years, depending on where you are on that journey, right? As long as I can take these to the grave, I'm good. And what Jesus wants to do first in these first couple of verses is address our secrets in light of a vibrant eschatology. And he shows us a better way to live our lives. And here's what he says. He says, be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees. And boy, did I want to preach that line because I'm a baker and I thought I'd have the best illustration, but we have to move on. Um, <laughs> which is hypocrisy, which we talked about last week. There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in an ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Some of you are like, I didn't know Jesus said that. I'm a little freaked out right now, right? I wish I'd known that a little bit longer ago. But he's saying that if the disciples aren't careful, 
the hypocritical tendency to put up a front will slowly start to creep into their lives like leaven and bread. And they'll begin to act one way in public and another way in private. And that's why in four different ways here, he makes the same point about the end, about our vision of the future, to give us a vibrant eschatology. He says, in the end, there's no secret that's safe. In the end, there is no secret that's safe. And he talks about four different ways to get that across. Covered versus uncovered. Hidden versus known. Dark brought into the light. Whispered, proclaimed. There's no secret that you can take to the grave. Some of you are like, that's not great. It's good news. Trust me. There is no secret that you can take to the grave because in the end, Jesus will resurrect both the living and the dead and all of our secrets will be exposed before him and the angelic host. All of our secrets will be exposed. But the good news is once you know that, you can stop wasting your time managing your image as so many of us are inclined to do right now. We spend so much time, so much thought power, so much energy managing our image, but if you know that in the end there's no secret that's safe, you can stop wasting your time trying to keep your secrets from getting out because in the end they will be brought out before the Father. And since you know it's going to be out there anyways, you can slip into a new habit. Instead of hiding, you can slip into a habit of confession. A habit where you're bringing out yourself before God and before other people. Letting him see the secrets of your heart. Letting even a brother or sister in Christ see who you really are. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a book I quote a lot called Life Together, talks about sin. He says, sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. Some of you know this. Uh, David described it in Psalm 51. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. And it brings your secrets out into the open. And so I'd encourage you, you know, there's a, I have a friend of mine that often when we meet to confess, some one of the questions we'll ask each other, is there anything you're trying to hide? Is there anything you don't want me to ask you about? It breaks that into the open. And it keeps us from living hypocritical lives. And what that does is it frees you to become a different kind of person, a person who is the same when you're alone and when you're with others, when people are watching and no one is watching, a life of integrity. Integrity is one of those really Christian-y type words, but what that means is it's a life that holds together because it's consistent on the inside and the outside. You can have bad integrity. You can be awful on the outside and the inside, but what we want is good integrity, good on the outside, kind, loving, and the same when nobody is looking consistently the same person. So my first question that Jesus invites us to ask is, what are you trying to hide? Because secrets will make you spend your life managing your image, but in the end, no secret is safe. But how would you live if you weren't constantly anxious about being found out because you had nothing to hide? That's the life that you're made for. The next thing Jesus addresses after secrets is fears. He addresses the way that fears shape our lives because all of us, whether we're aware of them or not, are carrying around fears that are shaping the decisions that we make. And so the questions we have to ask is, what are you afraid of? We talked about what are you hiding, and the next question is, what are you afraid of? Um, to make another pop culture reference that's over 20, almost 20 or 30 years old, um, one of the Goen family favorite movies is Home Alone. Um, and originally, Julie, it was her favorite movie, and then she infected all of us like leaven and bread and made us all love Home Alone as well. Um, we haven't introduced it to the kids yet. They aren't ready for Kevin McAllister. But in that movie, Kevin, he's left home alone, and he's afraid of doing anything in the basement. Why? There's a furnace down there that talks in his imagination, and it's terrifying. 
Um, even for me, growing up, watching that furnace was scary. Um, until he has this moment where he finally gets up the guts and he says to the furnace to shut up and he gets on with his laundry. All of us have one of those in our lives, though. All of us have a furnace, something that we're avoiding, something that we're afraid of. I spent some time looking at some of the clinical phobias that are out there, and I had to edit it all out because there's some, because there's, there's some really great ones that we don't have time. But here's what fears will do. Fears will make you spend your life avoiding risk. Some of you are like, if I could describe myself in one way, it would be safe. Risk avoidant. Because fears will make you spend your life avoiding risk. This is what unchecked fear does in our lives. We start making decisions not based on what we feel like we need to do, but based on avoiding what we're afraid of. So for example, if you're afraid of getting rejected, you just don't try to make friends because you might get rejected. Or you're afraid of failing. This was me at one point in my life, so I just didn't try anything difficult. I just did what I knew was safe, what I could succeed at, what I could get an A-plus in. Or you're afraid of losing your job, so you don't speak up when you see something wrong. We have our fears, and what ends up happening is those fears that we're all carrying end up shaping the decisions that we're making in powerful ways. Just like our secrets, our fears can shape our decisions, but instead of managing our image, they lead us to avoiding risk. Andy Crouch, in a book that he wrote recently called The Life We're Looking For, describes the effect of fear on our lives. He says this. He says, The defining emotional challenge of our time is anxiety, the fear of what might be instead of the courageous pursuit of what could be. Once, he says, we lived with allness of heart, with a boldness of quest that was too in love with the good to call off the pursuit when we encountered risk. And then he says later, now we live as voyeurs, pursuing shadowy vestiges of what we desire from behind the one-way mirror of a screen, invulnerable but alone. It's a way of saying, we have all these great ideas about what we want to do, what we want to become, what we want to see in the world, but we call it all off the moment one of our fears gets named, because we want to avoid risk. And so Jesus, in this passage, uses the word fear five times in different ways. It comes from the Greek phobeo, which is where we get the, uh, the ending phobia. And Jesus addresses the fears that we encounter to show us what it looks like to live, again, with a vibrant eschatology. Listen to what he says and just count the amount of times he uses the word fear or afraid. He says, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more, but I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has the authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are counted. So don't be afraid. Same word there. You are worth more than many sparrows. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. In particular, in this passage, he doesn't talk about some of the other fears that might wander around, fear of spiders, fear of peanut butter, it's a real thing. Um, in this passage, right, he addresses the very real fear of an untimely death that his followers were facing. And if his followers left this fear unchecked, they would have avoided many of the risks that he was going to ask them to take shortly. Taking the good news about Jesus and his kingdom to dangerous places, which is exactly what he was doing. Even from his first sermon, you might remember from season one or season two in Luke chapter four, Jesus got up and preached his first sermon. What is the first thing they try to do? They try to throw him off a cliff. That this is the kind of interactions Jesus has and the kind of reactions that it triggers. But just as what Jesus is saying, he's like, but you need a vibrant eschatology. You're looking too much at the present. You, you, you have an imminent frame. He's saying, look at this. In the end, there is only one fear that matters. 
And it's the fear that drives out every other fear. It's not the fear of physical death. It's not the fear of anything else. He says, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that can do nothing more. And then you might be thinking, but look, if, if your view is physical death is the end of your life and you're thinking, what could possibly be worse than death? What Jesus starts talking about here is hell. All right? <laughs> so it's easy to have this picture of Jesus sometimes where he doesn't ever talk about hell, judgment, fire, punishment, all that kind of stuff. You're like, I love Jesus, love your neighbor, let all the children come to me. The issue is that shortly after a lot of those phrases, he talks about hell and judgment and fire and torment and shredding people to pieces, which is what uh, I gave Chris to preach on in a few weeks from now. Um, (laughs) None of it holds up when you actually read the Gospels and read about Jesus and see how often he talks about it. We'll talk more about this as we move through Luke, but according to Jesus, the main thing for us right now is that hell is an awful place punishment, apart from the presence of God, marked by darkness, fire, and lament. Not a place you want to be. Great book on it, Racing Hell by Francis Chan. Good place to start. But what Jesus is saying is that if you're going to have fear, have less fear toward the ones who can send you to physical death and more fear toward the one who can send you to spiritual death after you die. That's what Jesus says to fear. But what does that mean? What does it mean to fear God? You know, I remember hearing that growing up, I'm like, am I supposed to be afraid of God? I'm a little confused at what this is getting across. What does it mean to be afraid of him as the one who has the authority to throw us into hell after death? Is it the same as any other fear? I don't really think so. Here's why. At the end, what does he say to his followers about fearing God? He says, then you don't have to be what? You don't have to be afraid. If you get your fear oriented in the right direction, it makes you unafraid of everything else. Fear of God, whatever it is, is the fear that actually casts out every other fear. God isn't just the one in this passage. Notice Jesus doesn't end by saying, hey, and the Father has the uh, the authority to cast you into hell after you die. And he's like, all right, let's move on to the next teaching. He doesn't end there. What does he say? He says, oh yeah, by the way, God cares about sparrows, which are worth almost nothing. And you know how much you're worth to him? He knows the hair on your head, so you don't have to be afraid. He doesn't end by saying, all right, I'm going to put some hellfire fear into you. Rather, what he says is, no, fear of God looks a little bit different. It's a fear that casts out every fear because you know he loves you. You know that you are valuable in his sight. That's why whenever I've defined fear of God, I've always said it this way. It's knowing what God could do to you and what he has done for you. It's knowing what God could do to you. Yeah, he does have the authority to do that. But what he has done for us in Christ is that he sent his son to take that punishment on himself so that we can be free by faith and through grace to live a life that we're made for and continue on forever. That's what God has done for us. Some of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, or maybe you're familiar. These four children go through a wardrobe, they end up in Narnia. By the way, you know, we're about to put a wardrobe in one of our rooms, and we're going to put a Narnia kind of wallpaper on the back of it, so that one day when my children read it years from now, and they go look in that wardrobe, they find out there is Narnia back there. Nonetheless, nonetheless, here's the point, okay? They go into Narnia, and eventually they meet and hear about a lion named Aslan. There's this one point, and when you meet a lion, like normally when they had heard of lions, lions were in zoos, they were terrifying, they can shred you to pieces. And so they start hearing about this lion, and they're like, um, should we be afraid of this lion? You know, it's this lion, and one of them asks, hey, is, is Aslan safe? And another character says, well, he's not, no, 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 he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. That's what it means to fear God. It's knowing what he could do to you and in his goodness what he has done for you. And if you get this right, it frees you from all the other fears that might drive your decision-making. It frees you to take real risk in your life because you don't have anything to be afraid of because nothing, there's, and nothing great happens apart from risk. If you don't have to be afraid of death, there's nothing else you have to be afraid of either. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, look, let me take on the greatest fear, death, and then under that, any other fear that you might have gets erased. 
Any other fear gets overcome by the fear of God. You can risk getting rejected for putting yourself out there. You can risk taking a new creative venture that might result in failure. You can take a risk because you know that God knows the number of hairs on your head and that you are more valuable than birds to him. And many of his followers would go on to die for the sake of the gospel because they knew that in the end, only fear of God matters. Just read the book of Acts, the sequel to Luke. Elton Trueblood summarizes it this way years ago. He says, it is surely not so bad to die, provided one has really lived before he dies. Life need not be long to be good, for indeed it cannot be long. The tragedy, the tragedy is not that all die, but that so many fail really to live. And the chief way in which men and women miss much of the possible richness of living is by playing the game safely, seeking always to avoid all risk. I don't know about you, but I've spent too much of my life playing the game safely, avoiding all risk. And I'm tired of that. What are you afraid of? Because fear will make you spend your life avoiding risk. But in the end, there's only one fear that matters, and it's the fear of God. The one fear that makes us unafraid of everything else. And so my question for you is, how would you live if you weren't afraid of anything? That's the life that you're made for. Third thing Jesus addresses is the insecurities, the insecurities that shape our lives. All of us are naturally prone toward insecurity that shapes the decisions we make with our lives. Insecurity can take lots of different forms, but one of the primary ways it shows up, especially in this passage, is the need for constant affirmation. Insecurity at its core is a lack of confidence, and what you need if you're insecure is this need for constant affirmation. So the question you need to ask here to get at the core of your insecurities is what affirmation or whose affirmation can you not live without? When we make a decision, maybe you've made a decision this week, often we're asking, well, what would this person think of that decision? It might be your parents or grandparents. It might be a certain friend group. It might be someone you don't even know but admire from a distance, and you're thinking, I want to know what they think of my opinion. It might be people who tend to share your political views. It might be your spouse. It might be a mentor. Somebody in your life has a, has a, like a huge impact on your decision-making. And insecurity will make you spend your life looking for affirmation. Insecurity will make you spend your life looking for affirmation. Rather than doing the right thing, you will spend your life looking for the right people to approve of you. If you're desperate for approval and affirmation from others, your decisions are going to be made according to that. Whatever opinion matters most to you because we're too insecure to make a decision that, makes, that can't be immediately affirmed. And so the problem, though, with this, as you've probably experienced this, is people's opinions change all the time. And the very person that you thought would love, uh, love you for whatever you did ends up actually having changed their opinion, and they no longer feel that way. Because opinions rise and fall depending on the day. And you're going to spend your whole life chasing after people's affirmation. But speaking into this, speaking into insecurities, especially the need for approval, Jesus offers again a vibrant eschatology. He says this, he says, And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Jesus knew that in the coming years, his followers were going to experience pressure to conform to the court of public opinion or to the court of whatever opinion matters most to them. It might not even be that public. It might not even be a big opinion. It just might be one person. And if his followers left their insecurities unchecked, 
if affirmation was the most important thing to them, he knew that in those moments, what was going to happen is they were going to bend under the pressure. And as he says here, deny him. All you have to do is look at the story of Peter to see this play out, right? All, well, first of all, all the disciples abandoned him except John. And Peter at one point denied Jesus three times, not, not even knowing him before a court of just a couple of people. But what Jesus is saying here is, again, he's giving us a vibrant eschatology. He's pointing us to the future. He says, in the end, there's only one opinion that counts. In the end, there's only one opinion that counts. It's not the opinion of the Pharisees. It's not the opinion of your friend group, your political party, your mom, your in-laws. It's his. It's not any earthly court. It's the heavenly court, the court that includes the angels, as he says here. And to make his point, he starts talking about Judgment Day. Again, this isn't the rosiest Jesus right here. Um, when he returns to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus says on that day, he'll either acknowledge or deny us. It's a terrifying reality. He'll either acknowledge or deny us. He'll either say, hey, friend, I know you. Come on in. Or he'll say, look, depart from me. I have no idea who you are. I have no idea who you are. And so whatever relief you might get for denying him in the moment, it's not worth it, he says, in the end. Because the opinion of Jesus is the only one that has any clout. His court is the only one that actually can uh, have a verdict over your life. And while we're here, I know that some of you are thinking, could we just talk briefly about that line about the unforgivable sin? Um, I just want to make sure I didn't do that one. Um, in 10 years of ministry, often somebody will say to me, like, hey, what's that? You know, I just want to check. just want to make sure I'm good. I didn't do the one thing that Jesus says he can't forgive because he says the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so a lot of people are like, well, what is that? Scholars are kind of divided on it. My sense is that what that refers to is the persistent, ongoing, over the course of your life, rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life to the identity of Jesus. Some of you are like, say that again. It's the persistent rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life to the identity of Jesus. That's what the Pharisees did, right, when Jesus casted out demons, where he says this in another context. They said, nope, that's not real, that's Satan. It, what it's saying is like anything, when the Holy Spirit is coming to you and saying, look, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, the rejection of that, the hardening of your heart to that is what this is about. The problem isn't that God can't forgive. The problem is a person in that condition never seeks forgiveness in the first place. So if you're wondering, have I committed the unforgivable sin? No. If you're worried about it, it's not your issue. Um, it's those who have a persistent rejection of Jesus um, throughout the course of their life. That's what we're talking about. And so again, coming back, is that if the only opinion that matters is hearing Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, you're free to live without the need for constant affirmation from other people around you. One of the things that insecure people often have to do is if they're not caving to the opinions of others, they're constantly worrying about how they'll defend themselves. This is something I do. When I make a decision, one of the things that I first think of is like, okay, how am I going to defend it against so-and-so's opinion? And it, that's, that looks like confidence, but it's actually insecurity because I'm not confident enough to let the Lord defend whatever decision needs to be made, especially about Jesus. But what we see here is that you don't have to worry about defending yourself because the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour must be said. What, what he's saying is God's going to take care of it. And we see that in the lives of his followers. Jesus, or Peter declined Jesus, or denied Jesus three times. But after he received the Holy Spirit, he spoke boldly when derided by religious leaders. And so even Peter denying Jesus three times, whatever the forgive, unforgivable sin was, that wasn't it. Because eventually he came back around, received the gift of the Spirit, and began to preach boldly about him and having a defense even when he was dragged before people. And so insecurity will make you spend your life seeking affirmation. But in the end, there's only one opinion that matters. It's the opinion of Jesus on the last day. 
my question for you is, what would you do if you weren't so worried about what other people thought of you? That's the life you're made for. What would it look like, in summary, if you weren't driven by secrets, fear, and insecurity? If you weren't hiding anything because God knows it anyways? If you weren't afraid of anything because you have one fear that drives out all fear? If you didn't need anyone's approval because you already have God's? My question again is, do you believe that kind of life is possible? What Jesus is saying is that it is. He said, if you have the right view of the future and let it influence your life in the present, that kind of life is possible. You can be that kind of person that when you meet them, that you're like, I would love to be that. Jesus is saying, you can, and I'm giving you the way to do that. And as we close, let me tell you just one story I read recently of what it looks like. I've been reading a novel or a memoir called Everything Sad is Untrue. It's written by an Iranian-born refugee named Daniel Nayeri, uh, who grew up in Oklahoma. And in the middle of the book, he begins to explain how he ended up there. He says they were a wealthy Muslim family with a bloodline that goes back to the prophet Muhammad themselves. They were Muslims among Muslims. They were rich. Uh, they were wealthy. Um, they had possessions. They had property. But while on a trip to England together, his mother Sima had this moment where she had a couple of moments and a couple of experiences that led her to believe that the claims of Christianity were true and everything she had believed was false. And she gave her life to Jesus. She converted to Christianity. And there's an amazing story of how that happened. But there, he, my, he writes, he says, there's nothing that could stop his mom from that point on. She knew when they came back to Iran, she knew she had to keep that a secret, but she couldn't do it. She knew that if she didn't keep it a secret, she'd receive death threats. At one point, she was abducted and left next to a drain with bloodstains there to intimidate her. She would lose the approval of her husband and her community. Eventually, her husband left her over this. Uh, even she'd lose her well-paying job as a doctor. She was, she was brilliant. She had a good job, and she lost it. She lost the life she knew. She lost a home, and she ended up growing up and restarting, or restarting her whole life with her two kids in Oklahoma. And Daniel Nairi is writing about this years later in a non-Christian memoir. This isn't like, a, like one of those stories that you get in like a Christian bookstore. This is like a New York Times, NPR, but he's like, this is an amazing book. In the middle of that, he starts telling the story about his mom, and here's how he summarizes it. He says, the legend of my mom is that she can't be stopped. Not when you hit her, not when a whole country full of goons puts her in a cage, not even if you make her poor and try to kill her slowly in a little-by-little poison of sadness. And the legend is true, I think because what? She has fixed her eyes on something beyond the rivers of blood to a beautiful place on the other side. How else would anybody do it? In other places, he says that, look, everybody's going to die, but not everybody's going to have something to live for. She found something to live for. She had a vision of the future that was impacting how she lived in the present. She had a vibrant eschatology that broke her out of the imminent frame that so many of us live in, and she lived a life of consequence. So much so that the New York Times Magazine calls this story a modern masterpiece. That's a life of consequence. And it's only possible if you have a vibrant eschatology where you're not driven by secrets, fears, and insecurities. That can be your life. People can tell stories of your life, of what God has done through your life, because you weren't afraid because you weren't desperate for affirmation anymore, because you weren't carrying around secrets anymore, because you lived like you weren't afraid. You live like there's something more to this world. All of us, I'm going to give you some good news as we close. All of us are going to have moments. Some of you are probably listing the moments right now where insecurity or fear or secrets have driven your decision making. All of us are going to have those moments driven by what we're trying to hide, what we're afraid of, whose approval we're trying to win. But the good news, this is what Jesus came to do, is the good news is that wasn't the case with Jesus. Jesus 
had nothing to hide. He was the same inside and out. He was the same when he was alone with the Father, when he was with the disciples, when he was in a room with the Pharisees, when he was standing before thousands, when he was standing up to give his first sermon, when he was walking the path to the cross. He had nothing to hide. He had nothing to fear because he knew that God could raise him even from the dead. There's a moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where the fear of death, it looks like it's going to overcome him, but he powers through. Why? Because God, he, he knows what God has called him to. He knows that God is the one who can raise him from the dead. He had no one whose approval he wanted when he was standing in the court of human opinion and people were saying, look, re reject all of this. Reject all these things, these silly things that you've been saying. He said, I can't. This is who I am. He knew that God had already given him all the affirmation that we crave, that no human can give at his baptism when God spoke over him. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. That's the affirmation all of us are trying to get from everyone else. But God already wants to give it to you in Jesus. And as a result, Jesus went all the way to the cross for you and me. A bunch of people who are insecure, afraid, carrying around secrets, hiding all kinds of stuff, so that through faith in what he's done, we could begin to live the lives that we're made for, just like him. Let's pray. Lord, so many of us can list out the insecurities. So many of us can list out our fears. So many of us can list out the secrets. But so few of us have a vibrant eschatology that is, that is uh, giving us a compelling vision to live for. Lord, I fill our minds. Earlier we sang about gazing our attention, get, fixing our eyes upon you. I pray right now where we're sitting that we might have an encounter with your Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, give us a vision. Give us an encounter of Jesus at the end of our lives, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Saying, you are my son, you are my daughter whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Saying, yes, come on in, friend. I know who you are. I've seen you. I've watched your story unfold. I've forgiven you of your sins. Come on in. Lord, give us a vision of that, one that is so strong, one that is so compelling, God, that it drives our lives forward. May we be a people who live without secrets and insecurities and fears because we have a vision of the future that impacts our lives in the present. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.